Book Fifth, Chapter Four of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Book Fifth, Chapter Four. She had gone out with these last words so in her ears that when once she was well away, back this time in the great square alone, it was as if some instant application of them had opened out there before her. It was positively that effect, an excitement that carried her on. She went forward into space under the sense of an impulsive received, an impulse simple and direct, easy above all to act upon. She was borne up for the hour, and now she knew why she had wanted to come by herself. No one in the world could have sufficiently entered into her state. No tie would have been close enough to enable a companion to walk beside her without some disparity. She literally felt, in this first flush, that her only company must be the human race at large present all round her but inspiringly impersonal and that her only field must be then and there the great immensity of london grey immensity had somehow of a sudden become her element grey immensity was what her distinguished friend had for the moment furnished her world with and what the question of living as he put it to her living by option by volition, inevitably took on for its immediate face. She went straight before her, without weakness, altogether with strength, and still as she went she was more glad to be alone, for nobody, not Kate Croy, not Susan Shepherd either, would have wished to rush with her as she rushed. She had asked him at the last whether, being on foot, she might go home so, or elsewhere, and he had replied as if almost amused again at her extravagance. You're active, luckily, by nature. It's beautiful, therefore rejoice in it. Be active, without folly, for you're not foolish. Be as active as you can, and as you like. That had been, in fact, the final push, as well as the touch that most made a mixture of her consciousness, a strange mixture that tasted at one and the same time of what she had lost and what had been given her. It was wonderful to her, while she took her random course, that these quantities felt so equal. She had been treated, hadn't she, as if it were in her power to live, and yet one wasn't treated so, was one unless it had come up quite as much that one might die. The beauty of the bloom had gone from the small old sense of safety. That was distinct. She had left it behind her there for ever. But the beauty of the idea of a great adventure, a big dim experiment or struggle in which she might more responsibly than ever before take a hand, had been offered her instead. It was as if she had had to pluck off her breast 
to throw away some friendly ornament, a familiar flower, a little old jewel that was part of her daily dress, and to take up and shoulder as a substitute some queer defensive weapon, a musket, a spear, a battle-axe, conducive possibly in a higher degree to a striking appearance, but demanding all the effort of the military posture. She felt this instrument, for that matter, already on her back, so that she proceeded now in very truth after the fashion of a soldier on a march, proceeded as if for her initiation the first charge had been sounded. She passed along unknown streets, over dusty, littery ways, between long rows of fronts not enhanced by the August light. She felt good for miles and only wanted to get lost. There were moments at corners where she stopped and chose her direction, in which she quite lived up to the injunction to rejoice that she was active. It was like a new pleasure to have so new a reason. She would affirm without delay her option, her volition, taking this personal possession of what surrounded her was a fair affirmation to start with. And she really didn't care if she made it at the cost of alarms for Susie. Susie would wonder in due course whatever, as they said at the hotel, had become of her. Yet this would be nothing either, probably to wonderments still in store. Wonderments in truth, Milly felt, even now attended her steps. It was quite as if she saw in people's eyes the reflection of her appearance and pace. She found herself moving at times in regions visibly not haunted by odd-looking girls from New York, duskily draped, sable-plumed, all but incongruously shod, and gazing about them with extravagance. She might, from the curiosity she clearly excited in byways, in side streets peopled with grimy children and costermongers' carts, which she hoped were slums, literally have had her musket on her shoulder, have announced herself as freshly on the warpath. But for the fear of overdoing the character, she would here and there have begun conversation, have asked her way, in spite of the fact that, as this would help the requirements of adventure, her way was exactly what she wanted not to know. The difficulty was that she at last accidentally found it. She had come out, she presently saw, at the Regent's Park, round which on two or three occasions with Kate Croy her public chariot had solemnly rolled. But she went into it further now. This was the real thing. The real thing was to be quite away from the pompous roads, well within the centre and on the stretches of shabby grass. Here were benches and smutty sheep. Here were idle lads at games of ball, with their cries smiled in the thick air, here were wanderers anxious and tired like herself. Here, doubtless, were hundreds of others just in the same box. Their box, their great common anxiety, what was it in this grim breathing space but the practical question of life? They could live if they would, that is, like herself. They had been told so, 
She saw them all about her, on seats, digesting the information, recognizing it again as something in a slightly different shape, familiar enough. The blessed old truth that they would live if they could. All she thus shared with them made her wish to sit in their company, which she so far did that she looked for a bench that was empty, eschewing a still emptier share that she saw hard by and for which she would have paid with superiority a fee. The last scrap of superiority had soon enough left her, if only because she before long knew herself for more tired than she had proposed. This and the charm, after a fashion, of the situation in itself, made her linger and rest. There was an accepted spell in the sense that nobody in the world knew where she was. It was the first time in her life that this had happened. Somebody, everybody, appeared to have known before, at every instant of it, where she was, so that she was now suddenly able to put it to herself that that hadn't been a life. This present kind of thing, therefore, might be, which was where precisely her distinguished friend seemed to be wishing her to come out. He wished her also, it was true, not to make, as she was perhaps doing now, too much of her isolation. At the same time, however, as he clearly desired to deny her no decent source of interest. He was interested, she arrived at that, in her appealing to as many sources as possible. And it fairly filtered into her, as she sat and sat, that he was essentially propping her up. Had she been doing it herself, she would have called it bolstering, the bolstering that was simply for the weak, and she thought and thought, as she put together the proofs, that it was as one of the weak he was treating her. It was, of course, as one of the weak that she had gone to him, but, oh, with how sneaking a hope that he might pronounce her, as to all indispensables, a veritable young lioness. What indeed she was really confronted with was the consciousness that he hadn't after all pronounced her anything. She nursed herself into the sense that he had beautifully got out of it. Did he think, however, she wondered, that he could keep out of it to the end, though as she weighed the question she yet felt it a little unjust? Milly weighed, in this extraordinary hour, questions numerous and strange, but she had happily, before she moved, worked round to simplification. Stranger than anything, for instance, was the effect of its rolling over her that, when one considered it, he might perhaps have got out by one door, but to come in with a beautiful, beneficent dishonesty by another. It kept her more intensely motionless there that what he might fundamentally be up to was some disguised intention of standing by her as a friend. Wasn't that what women always said they wanted to do when they deprecated the addresses of gentlemen they couldn't more intimately go on with? It was what they, no doubt, sincerely fancied they could make of men of whom they couldn't make husbands and she didn't even reason that it was by a similar law the expedient of doctors in general for the invalids of whom they couldn't make patients. 
she was somehow so sufficiently aware that her doctor was, however fatuous it might sound, exceptionally moved. This was the damning little fact. If she could talk of damnation, that she could believe herself to have caught him in the act of irrelevantly liking her. She hadn't gone to him to be liked. She had gone to him to be judged, and he was quite a great enough man to be in the habit, as a rule, of observing the difference. She could like him, as she distinctly did. That was another matter, all the more that her doing so was now, so obviously for herself, compatible with judgment. Yet it would have been all potentiously mixed, had not, as we say, a final and merciful wave, chilling rather, but washing clear, come to her assistance. It came of a sudden when all other thought was spent. She had been asking herself why, if her case was grave, and she knew what she meant by that, he should have talked to her all about what she might with futility do, or why, on the other hand, if it were light, he should attach an importance to the office of friendship. She had him with her little lonely acuteness, as acuteness went during the dog-days in the Regent Park, in a left stick. She either mattered, and then she was ill, or she didn't matter, and then she was well enough. Now he was acting, as they said at home, as if she did matter, until he should prove the contrary. It was too evident that a person at his high pressure must keep his inconsistencies, which were probably his highest amusements, only for the very greatest occasions. Her prevision, in fine, of just where he should catch him furnished the light of that judgment in which we describe her as daring to indulge. And the judgment it was that made her sensation simple. He had distinguished her. That was the chill. He hadn't known, how could he, that she was devilishly subtle, subtle exactly in the manner of the suspected, the suspicious, the condemned. He in fact confessed to it, in his way, as to an interest in her combinations, her funny race, her funny losses, her funny gains, her funny freedom, and, no doubt, above all, her funny manners, funny like those of Americans at their best, without being vulgar, legitimating amiability, and helping to pass it off. In his appreciation of these redundancies, he dressed out for her the compassion he so signally permitted himself to waste, but its operation for herself was as directly divesting, denuding, exposing. It reduced her to her ultimate state, which was that of a poor girl, with a rent to pay, for example, staring before her in a great city. Milly had her rent to pay, her rent for her future, everything else but how to meet it fell away from her in pieces, in tatters. This was the sensation the great man had doubtless not purposed. Well, she must go home, like the poor girl, and see. There might, after all, be ways. The poor girl, too, would be thinking. It came back, for that matter, perhaps to views already presented. She looked about her again on her feet, 
at her scattered melancholy comrades, some of them so melancholy as to be down on their stomachs in the grass, turned away, ignoring, burrowing. She saw once more with them those two faces of the question between which there was so little to choose for inspiration. It was perhaps superficially more striking that one could live if one would, but it was more appealing, insinuating, irresistible in short, that one would live if one could. She found after this, for the day or two, more amusement than she had ventured to count on in the fact, if it were not a mere fancy of deceiving Susie, and she presently felt that what made the difference was the mere fancy, as this was one of a counter-move to her great man. His taking on himself, should he do so, to get at her companion, made her suddenly, she held, irresponsible, made any notion of her own all right for her, though indeed at the very moment she invited herself to enjoy this impunity, she became aware of new matter for surprise or at least for speculation. Her idea would rather have been that Mrs. Stringham would have looked at her hard, her sketch of the grounds of her independent long excursion showing she could feel as almost cynically superficial. Yet the dear woman so failed in the event to avail herself of any right of criticism that it was sensibly tempting to wonder for an hour if Kate Croy had been playing perfectly fair. Hadn't she possibly, from motives of the highest benevolence, prompting of the finest anxiety, just given poor Susie what she would have called the straight tip? It must immediately be mentioned, however, that quite apart from a remembrance of the distinctness of Kate's promise, Milly, the next thing, found her explanation in a truth that had the merit of being general. If Susie at this crisis suspiciously spared her, it was really that Susie was always suspiciously sparing her, yet occasionally, too, with portentous and exceptional mercies. The girl was conscious of how she dropped at times into inscrutable, impenetrable deferences, attitudes that, though without all intending it, made a difference for familiarity, for the ease of intimacy. It was as if she recalled herself to manners, to the law of court etiquette, which last note above all helped our young woman to a just appreciation. It was definite for her, even if not quite solid, that to treat her as a princess was a positive need of her companion's mind wherefore she couldn't help it if this lady had her transcendent view of the way the class in question were treated susan had read history had read gibbon and frode and saint simon she had high lights as to the special allowances made for the class and since she saw them when young as a fit and overtutured inevitably ironic and infinitely refined one must take it for amusing have she inclined to an indulgence verily byzantine if one could only be byzantine wasn't that was she insidiously led one on to sigh milly tried to oblige her for it really placed susan herself so handsomely to be byzantine now 
The great ladies of that race, it would be somewhere in Gibbon, were apparently not questioned about their mysteries. But, oh, poor Milly and hers! Susan, at all event, proved scarce more inquisitive than if she had been a mosaic at Ravenna. Susan was a porcelain monument to the odd moral that consideration might, like cynicism, have abysses. Besides, the Puritan finally disencumbered. What starved generations wasn't Mrs. Stringham, in fancy, going to make up for? Kate Croy came straight to the hotel, came that evening shortly before dinner, specifically and publicly, moreover, in a hansom that, driven apparently very fast, pulled up beneath their windows almost with the clatter of an accident, a smash. Milly alone, as happened in the great garnished void of their sitting-room, were a little really like a caged Byzantine. She had been pacing through the queer, long-drawn, almost sinister delay of night, an effect she yet liked. Milly, at the sound, one of the French windows standing open, passed out to the balcony that overhung with pretensions the general entrance and so was in time for the look that Kate, alighting, paying her cabman, happened to send up to the front. The visitor, moreover, had a shilling back to wait for, during which Milly, from the balcony, looked down at her, and a mute exchange, but with smiles and nods, took place between them on what had occurred in the morning. It was what Kate had called for, and the tone was thus almost by accident determined for Milly before her friend came up. What was also, however, determined for her was again, yet irrepressibly again, that the image presented to her, the splendid young woman who looked so particularly handsome in impatience. With the fine freedom of her signal was the peculiar property of somebody else's vision that this fine freedom, in short, was the fine freedom she showed Mr. Densher. Just so was how she looked to him, and just so was how Milly had held by her, held as by the strange sense of seeing through that distant person's eyes. It lasted, as usual, the strange sense, but fifty seconds, yet in so lasting it produced an effect. It produced, in fact, more than one, and we take them in their order. The first was that it struck our young woman as absurd to say that a girl's looking so to a man could possibly be without connections, and the second was that by the time Kate had got into the room, Milly was in mental possession of the main connection it must have for herself. She produced this commodity on the spot, produced it in straight response to Kate's frank, well, what? The inquiry bore, of course, with Kate's eagerness on the issue of the morning scene, the great man's latest wisdom, and it doubtless affected Milly a little, as the cheerful demand for news is apt to affect troubled spirits when news is not, in one of the neater forms, prepared for delivery. She couldn't have said what it was exactly that on the instant determined her. The nearest description of it would perhaps have been, as the more vivid impression of all her friend took for granted, 
the contrast between this free quantity and the maze of possibilities through which for hours she had herself been picking her way put on in short for the moment a grossness that even friendly forms scarce lightened it helped forward in fact the revelation to herself that she absolutely had nothing to tell besides which certainly there was something else an influence at the particular juncture still more obscure kate had lost on the way upstairs the look the look that made her young hostess so subtly think of one of the signs of which was that she never kept it for many moments at once yet she stood there none the less so in her bloom and in her strength so completely again the handsome girl beyond all others the handsome girl for whom milly had at first gratefully taken her that to meet her now with the note of the plaintive would amount somehow to a surrender to a confession she would never in her life be ill the greatest doctors would keep her at the worst the fewest minutes and it was as if she had asked just with all this practical impeccability for all that was most mortal in her friend these things for milly inwardly danced their dance but the vibration produced and the dust kicked up had lasted less than an account of them almost before she knew it she was answering and answering beautifully with no consciousness of fraud only as with a sudden flare of the famous will-power she had heard about read about and which was what her medical adviser had mainly thrown her back on oh it's all right he's lovely kate was splendid and it would have been clear for milly now had the further presumption been needed that she had said no word to mrs stringham you mean you have been absurd absurd it was a simple word to say but the consequence of it for our young woman was that she felt it as soon as spoken to have done something for her safety and kate really hung on her lips there's nothing at all the matter nothing to worry about i shall need a little watching but i shan't have to do anything dreadful or even in the least inconvenient i can do in fact as i like it was wonderful for milly how just to put it so made all its pieces fall at present quite properly into their places yet even before the full effect came kate had seized kissed blessed her my love you're too sweet it's too dear but it's as i was sure then she grasped the full beauty you can do as you like quite isn't it charming ah but catch you kate triumphed with gaiety not doing and what shall you do for the moment simply enjoy it enjoy milly was completely luminous having got out of my scrape learning you mean so easily that you are well it was as if kate had but too conveniently 
put the words into her mouth. Learning, I mean so easily, that I am well. Only no one's, of course, well enough to stay in London now. He can't, Kate went on, want this for you. Mercy, no. I'm to knock about. I'm to go places. But no beastly climates. Engadins, Rivieras, Boredoms? No, just as I say, where I prefer. I'm to go in for pleasure. Oh, the duck! Kate, with her own shades of familiarity, abounded. But what kind of pleasure? The highest, Milly smiled. Her friend met it as nobly. Which is the highest? Well, it's just our chance to find out. You must help me. What have I wanted to do but help you? Kate asked. From the moment I first laid eyes on you. Yet with this too, Kate had her wonder. I like your talking, though, about that. What help, with your luck all round, do you need? End of Book Fifth, Chapter Four, read by Lars Rolander.